This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome sports fans, welcome business fans, and welcome statistics fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor Adi Weiner from the Statistics Department. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey, Shane Jensen, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And, of course, we're replayed throughout the week on iTunes and SoundCloud if you want to listen to our podcast. And, of course... Adi and I are going to be talking sports and statistics and business for the next two hours, but this is a call-in show. We love it when our call, when callers call in and tell us what's on their mind. And let me tell you, there's a lot on my mind with everything going on in the world of sports, but how can you join in? Well, you can do it very easily. You can call in at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also, of course, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And for those people that follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall, I'm tweeting all the time, so tweet at us, and we'll actually answer your questions. We put polls up on Twitter. There's lots of ways to get involved with Wharton Moneyball. Particularly if you're listening on the podcast and you're not able to call in between 8 and 10 on Wednesday. That is true, 8 to 10 Eastern. Eastern time you know, on Wednesday. Exactly. So first of all, uh, Adi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's been a, a very fun week. Great. Definitely. So what I thought I would do this morning, Adi, since there's so much going on in sports, I was literally shaking thinking about all the things we were going to talk about today. Um, I have like a list of about 10 things, and I, but obviously I knew it was going to be just you and me this morning. And so I want to ask you some questions about each of these topics from a statistical perspective, but I also want to just list the topics and see which of these caught your eye. Okay? So let's start with the first one. The f- and I'll just literally five you go se- through them all. Five or you wanna- yeah, I want to go okay. five seconds on each, and then you say which one caught your eye. The first one is: Is there any information in total points scored in a series? For example, right now it's two-two in the Cavs Celtics, and they've literally scored the identical number of points in both. Maybe one team is up plus one. So, is there any information value in the points? Second, um, last uh, the Warriors prior to last night's game to win that series were minus nine hundred. So that's another thing I want to talk about. The third, the Cavs are at minus 185, so the favorite, at 2-2 against the Celtics. Right, so let me just, uh, for our listeners, just to convert this into into probability. Let's convert the minus 900. Okay, so the easiest way to convert uh, uh, an odds into a probability is, so minus 900 means you bet 900 to win 100. You risk 900 to win 100. So the easiest way to do it is you take the sum of 900 plus 100, that's in the denominator, and you put the 900 in the numerator. So that's 900 over a thousand. That's ninety percent. Is the implied probability of the caval- of the of the Warriors winning, which is enormous. Right. Well, let's let's actually forget it. I'm, I'm scrapping. This is why I'm a Bayesian. and I update. We, we're going to start getting excited about all of these. So let's just talk about that one. I I wish I was desperate. I wish I had put some. I understand it's easy to say post hoc. The Rockets won the game 2-2. You know, now, by the way, just to let you know, the updated number, Do you, I'll, it's not written down here on the sheet. There's no way you could know it unless you I looked it up. This I morning. don't okay. know it. I promise. What do I'm you, not cheating. I'm okay. not looking. So what do you think the updated number is? Remember, they were minus 900 up 2-1. to one. Now that it's 2-2, with the Rockets having home court advantage, let's be clear on this, what do you think the updated odds, just for them to win this series, not to win the title? Minus 650? Right. How am I doing? 
Uh, not good. Not, not good. good. It's, it's still over. No, it's now down to minus 185. Oh, my God. That makes no sense. <laughs> by, by the way, our listeners, this is why we have Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. So could you tell our listeners, let's just stop here. Why does it make no sense that the odds would go from 90%, let's be clear, you said 900 over 900 plus yeah. 100, to now let's do the other, similar math. Well, 185 over 285. 285 is somewhere around 60%. Yeah. Yeah, it's somewhere, it's a little higher, maybe two-thirds, one-third, roughly. Yeah, it's roughly two-thirds, one-third. So the odds dropped from 90% to 65%, let's call it. Why does that make no sense to you? Because it seems to be much, much larger than I would have expected just for one win. I mean, you have, you're essentially saying that the Warriors are going to win two out of the next four, right? And they, well, only and, three. Oh, only two three. three. Well, two now it's two three. out of the next three. But after, before yesterday, they had to win two out of four, right? That's before correct. One. And you were giving that a 90% chance. And now that they've tossed one, it just seems, I mean, I haven't worked through the, the full calculation, but I would have guessed it would have, would have gone down from 90% to about you know 85%. Yeah, uh, ju- just to let you know. Yeah. So, but that... So let me just say my gut feeling. I actually have no problem with the 185. I had the problem that's, with the 900. Yeah, exactly. that's, it that's, was the 900 right. that made no sense so to me. So what they're essentially saying is they've completely updated the probability of each individual game, and which, which they had at a much higher probability for the Warriors. And now they've dropped it down to a more, I think, correct number, and that's why they're getting the number 60, 65%. Either so. way, that number just shocked me. Now, by the way, one of the things I was talking to Dion Simpkins, our associate producer and sound engineer this morning, and our producer, of course, Matt Datz, is here with us before you came in, was last night's fourth quarter may end up being one of those quote-unquote historic moments in the NBA, and here's what I mean by that. I think you would agree if the Warriors had won last night's game, and let's be clear, they were up by ten at home going into the fourth quarter. That was the they were well, up eighty I mean, just, to seventy. Just to, just to backtrack, had, though, there they, was enormous, there were huge wi- no, uh, changes I mean, in in the score. The Rockets were up by seven at the half. The Warriors outscored them by seventeen in the third quarter to take a ten point lead. I think you would agree if they won game, if the Warriors had won game four, up three to one. I think we would have agreed 90% wouldn't have been implausible. Oh, matter no, that fact, maybe even right. higher, yep. maybe at least yes. 90%. With the Rockets winning the game, you and I might debate which effect size is larger. So let me just tell our listeners what I'm talking about here. So we agree, probably based on priors, based on their being the defending champs, the Warriors, let's assume for the moment the Warriors are the slightly better team. Although the regular season record didn't show it, they're the slightly better team. And priors and everything suggest that. But the Warriors, have, sorry, the Rockets now have two of the three games at home. Does it surprise you that the Warriors are favored at all? In other words, which effect size is larger? So let me just tell you, for you to believe that the Warriors should be favored, you'd, number one, have to ignore the regular season record, which both of us, I think, are willing to do. Perfectly willing to do. Perfectly yes. willing to do. You'd also have to put weight on that the priors matter in some sense that, of course, the Warriors are favored. They were the Tamps last year. Yeah, but this is a different season. You'd also have to say that whatever effect you believe of those first two is not dominated by the home court effect, which is known to have an effect. Absolutely. It's just to put you in context, uh, in basketball, the average, um, the on average, the home team wins 58% of the games. And... The Warriors actually historically have been have outperformed that average. They've had a particularly large home court. Well, home, I, I home think court you advantage. may know the statistics. Yeah. The, the Rockets just broke 
their the, wait, the Warriors had the streak for the longest home winning streak in the history of the NBA playoffs. They had won 16 straight home right. playoff games. By the way, most people say, "Oh, that's not that impressive." This is 16 games against playoff, against playoff quality teams, teams yeah. including, by the way, in the finals, a number of those games. So we're not even talking about, well, I hate to say this way, nothing personal against them. They're playing the Milwaukee Bucks. Or the, they're not playing the Bucks. Those games included games against the Cavs. They included games against the Rockets. included against the Clippers in previous seasons. I mean, these are against powerhouse they were tough teams. teams. They, had a, they had arguably one of the largest home court advantages. Yeah, so last night's game, but... I just wanted to get your impression of my sense that if the Rockets outscoring and winning that game yesterday, it may change the trajectory of the NBA for the next three to five years. That's a bold statement. So let's just backtrack. First, I'm going to answer your first question, which was on the total points. I don't think that has any meaning. Okay, so just be clear. The Rock in the two games the Celtics won, they outscored the Cavs by 38 points. In the two games the Cavs have won, they've outscored the Celtics by 39. So it's basically the same. So you don't think there's any value. Now, why would you say that? Because well, most fans would say they would. a 40-point okay. win is worth more than a 15-point win, and therefore, let's add it up and just kind of look which team has scored more. Or I, I, net well, point I mean, differential. Listen, I mean, I, you have to argue, you're looking at efficiency. So if you look at a big point differential, you'd argue that the team that has scored so many more points is, is considerably more efficient at scoring basketball baskets than, than their opponent. And so there has to be information. that It's like, it's a rate statistic. We're not thinking of it as a rate statistic, but you can divide by the number of opportunities approximately and turn it into a rate, and I would argue that that has to have some information. But on the other hand, basketball has some peculiar characteristics to it, which make it a little bit difficult to to extract information at this level. Um, one of the things about the the, this, the the Rockets game last night, and we were starting to touch into, and I don't know what this me- means to you, but the Warriors started off the game winning the first twelve points, and the Rockets looked horrible. I mean, they, they, they just they couldn't make anything, and I, I was shaking my head and thinking, "Oh my God, this is going to be a blowout." And then the next thing I knew, it. They just keep they were well, creeping up and creeping up, and they ended up leading. What was really impressive was that the Rockets came back from 10-point deficits twice in that game. Yep. One, to start the game that you pointed out. And the second part was they were down 80-70 to 70 to go into the fourth quarter. As a matter of fact, at one point in the fourth quarter, it got to a 12-point lead with like 10 minutes left in the game. So I think that the, the issue is in basketball, as, you've, as the teams, and both teams do it, have started to push this three-point technique or strategy with this constant passing and, and, and kicking it out to the, to the three-point line. There are three-point shots and there are three-point shots. And one thing, you realize that immediately. When you have an unguarded, wide open, plenty of time to take set it. three, Please you take, take it, it. And they shoot extremely at a much higher percentage. But when you're guarded and it's a difficult shot, that's what, that's what Steph Curry is particularly good at, then you have a, a much lower percentage. But what you see is is this increases variance as well. Please tell please tell our listeners why that's true. And I agree with that. And so and what you also mean is you don't just also mean variance. I yes, but I assume could you also tell our listeners you also assume you mean runs during the game. It's runs so that's essentially what I mean. Is it it's possible to have much uh, that you can collapse uh, big disadvantages. You can you can creep back from ten points. You can go up ten points. You can. You, it's just these are big swings. They're much more common when you're taking three point shots because you can miss three point shots in a row. Three see three or four three point shots is not unlikely, nope. and your opponent can make them, and then bam, you got a twelve point differential just out of nowhere. Well, we could spend all the time talking about basketball, and we'll, we'll get back to basketball. But one of the things that also happened recently was in baseball, and actually we have a caller, Brian, uh, from Madison, Wisconsin that wants to talk to us about, I think, about a little bit of baseball. So, Brian, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Thank you so much. Uh, I just want to first say that I've listened now for a few years, and this is 
definitely my favorite show on Sirius XM. And I really want to give a big, give a big like, woo-woo shout-out to uh, Adi because he uh, he's helped me out with my friends the last couple of years where he's uh, talked about how um, starting a relief pitcher, possibly the closer, uh, for the first inning is the best analytical way to start a baseball game. So I've, I've copied him and referred to him and, and talked about his theory. And then over the weekend, we got to see Sergio Romo go back-to-back games, uh, starting off the game and seeming to work. So I, I want to congratulate him on terms of uh, uh, this particular event happening and possibly working pretty well and just hear your all thoughts on what the future could hold in terms of uh, relief pitchers starting off baseball games. Well, first of all, Brian, we really appreciate your call. This was on my list of 10 things that I uh, wanted to get to. As a matter of fact, it was very high on my list, and so we're glad you called in about this. Obviously, Adi and I both noticed this. Um, as a matter of fact, it was interesting to hear Joe Madden's reaction to this, the former Rays manager, now, of course, the manager of the Cubs. But, of course, as you said, Brian, we have the person who predicted and said this was a good strategy on Wharton Moneyball long before this happened. We have the source here, Professor Adi Weiner. Tell us first, our listeners, why you think it's a good idea to potentially have a, uh, a reliever start the game and what you thought about it when you heard about it. Okay, so what actually happened was um, they started with a, a setup man, not the closer, but a setup man in the first inning, and then they put the starter in in the second inning. So that's what they actually did. Now, the reason why I've been thinking this is a terrific idea for many years is it, in an observation that came to me years ago when I was just studying baseball intensely for um, for the first time, and the observation is that the, so, much, so many of the runs occur in the first inning. And when, I, when you ask people why do so many runs occur in the first inning, they often come up with several explanations. And the most common is, is that the pitcher isn't settled yet. But it turns out it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with a simple observation that who leads off the lineup in the, the first batters. inning. The best batters. And the best batters are the best, and they produce the most runs. So then it became obvious, uh, sort of implied obvious, that you, you're going to need your, 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 clo- your relievers at some point in the game. And when you bring them in late in the game, you don't know who they're going to face. They can be facing the middle of the order. They can be facing the bottom of the order. And that because runs scored late in the game count exactly the same as those scored early in the game, people don't realize it. Runs prevented in the beginning are just as effective so as runs prevented later. So I have later. two questions. The thing that would make your theory good or correct is two observations. I'm going to ask them one at a time. So is the implication of what you're saying is is that uh, Sergio Romo, this reliever, I didn't say closer, reliever that came in, middle relief person came in, why would he be better able to get these initial batters right. out than the starting pitcher? Because let me just say, if that's not true, then your theory doesn't necessarily prevent runs. So what, what is okay. it empirically that suggests that might so, be so, true? So you're, you're, pushing toward, you're, you're pushing towards the caveats, which is one caveat is that you don't want to replace Verlander or a, a top a starter for a inferior setup man. So you got to get that just right out of the so way. So you would suggest doing it like the way the Rays did it, which is maybe you do this with your fourth and exactly. fifth starter. You, do you don't do it. And, you don't do it with the top starters for for a variety of reasons. But the um, the implication is so there's the other observation that I had made was that they underuse their relief staff. Because they hold back using them until they technically need Which, them. Or they may never need and them. And they therefore never need them. In games that you're way ahead or games that you've been blown out, they don't use them. And so the number of innings pitched by a lot of these top relievers over the course of too the season small. is way too small. So the most obvious way to get them to pitch more is use them earlier. And when the game is tied, 
first inning, games are always tied. That's actually a decent High play. leverage it's, point. It's not high leverage. It's exactly neutral leverage, but it's actually not a bad opportunity to use it. And now getting back to your question, the reason why the, the setup men are good is they can produce one inning of extreme high quality. They can't produce two or three or four, but they can do one. Well, all right, so I'm a math person. Just We're both PhD statisticians, so let me take this. To, I have two questions, but let me take this to the extreme. Why don't teams just do this for nine innings? Why don't you bring in nine separate pitchers if we believe the theory? Wait a second. If we believe the theory that one pitcher for three outs just can put all their effort in and do better than, let's imagine, it's. let's take a graph. On the x-axis is the number of innings your pitch. On the y-axis is performance. If we believe, just like demand goes down with You're prices. Notice right. I snuck in business here. If you demand did. goes down with prices, we're a business show. By the way, if you want to join the conversation like Brian did from Madison, Wisconsin, thank you again, Brian. You can join in, too. Call 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Our producer, Matt Datz, is waiting for your call. And he'll put it right up on the screen, and we'll, you'll start us off on a conversation. Why not, if you believe that performance degrades as the number of batters you face increases, why not have nine pitchers come in for one inning each? Okay, well, they're two, they're, they're two obvious retorts. Let, let's forget that I, do, I, don't, I only have a 25-person uh, baseball okay. team for a second, and I may run out of pitchers that way. Well, the problem is, is that you probably have better pitchers who you'd like to use for more innings than, rather than go deeper that way. So that's the all issue. Right, but, all right, so I'll use six pitchers for one and a half innings each. Anything, eight, four pitchers for 2.25 innings each. Like, Why don't I just divide it up that way? Well, that's actually a reasonable strategy. If you don't have resources that constrain you, which is you do, so you have to remember that, and you don't have a, a, a extraordinary pitchers who and are really much better than, than the just others. One game, you're and trying, you're, to, and win you're trying to win a, a bunch. So what you often see, for example, is you're going to see it more and more, particularly in the playoffs and the World Series. You're going to see this. You're going to be seeing pitchers. Pitching two, three innings, your starters two, three innings. Your, that's your what setup, you see in the playoffs, and that's what's happening. And that's because they're realizing that this can happen. That that a in a short stretch, a single pitcher, a pitcher is far better than a pitcher over a longer stretch, at least on average. I mean, that doesn't always work out. We saw yeah, we saw a no hitter from we're Braxton. We're talking about av- on and, average. And, so let me ask you another related question. Then is another potential positive about this that um, I believe it's true. Batting average goes up the more times you face a pitcher. That's the other observation. Therefore, why not mix up the number of pitchers? Why have a batter potentially face your starter four times limit that, and that has to help the team, too. Isn't right. that an argument for doing it as well? Absolutely. This is another argument. If you think about what happens, most pitchers get pulled somewhere between batter 25 and 35 or so, actually usually a little earlier than that, so that the top of the order usually always gets to see the pitcher, the starter, three times, and the bottom order of the order rarely. And so what you're doing is you're shifting it so that the bottom of the order is seeing the pitcher three times, and they're, of course, least likely to do damage. And the top of the order is not seeing the starter three times. They're only seeing twice. So you're really shifting up the top, and they're the most productive, and you're making it difficult. Now, one of the questions that, that has occurred to many people who I proposed this strategy to for a long time, in fact, we had, a conver- we had a conversation about this exact strategy with our baseball research seminar. And Brendan Harris, who was a, just completed his MBA here at uh, Wharton, he argued that it was impossible that teams weren't going to do this. But if any team was going to do this, it would be the race. 
Now, why is that? Is it because of the history of Joe Madden, or you know, he must he must have support from the management to to do, know, be to, the crazy to, fox or whatever they call. So maybe him. that's the issue. But one of the reasons why there's uh, a team wouldn't do this is there's pushback. First of all, Romo would hate this. The the, the pitcher who's in this position having to pitch the top against the top of the line of uh, the lineup. This, well, that's this another Trout and Otani and all the great hitters from the from the Angels. It's awful for them. The starters, on the other hand, should love it. And why would the starters love it? Because they don't have to face the top. Also, they can get credit for a win with under five innings. That's an that's a good or great point. Well, we also have more questions about this. We have Jack from right here in Philadelphia, the the city of champions, as I like to call it. You do, I do. So, Jack, <laughs> uh, this is Eric Prado and Andy Weiner. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Hi, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say I I really do disagree with the concept that you would. Basically, think about it in basic terms. You take the ball out of your best pitcher's hand for an undisclosed amount of time. I mean, I, I would question the statistic that that most of the runs are scored in the first inning. Where in, in the, I think the reality is is the challenge is when it gets to the fourth or fifth inning and the starting pitcher is left in too long, it's up to the manager to figure out when do I pull the pitcher and then bring in the reliever. I think that's where teams get hurt the most, as opposed to taking the ball out of the best player's hand early in the game. So, first of all, Jack, thank you for your question. Thank you for calling us here on Wharton Moneyball. So, Adi, let me let me interpret what Jack said. First thing is, I think um, you know, uh, I'm interested in your assessment of his opinion. But I think what he's stating to start with is just empirically false. In other words, you've studied this empirically. Just one. Let's just talk about one point. Most runs are scored in the first inning. I mean, well, more runs are scored in the, the first, first inning, inning than any other inning. Okay, so we all agree that you would want. I mean, if you could prevent more runs in the first inning, that would be a good thing towards win probability. You see, the problem is, is that what Jack said is that um, obviously, first of all, teams do not use their uh, relief staff properly. They don't right. pu- pull them in and the you end. Agree and that, with, and that, I agree you with agree that. With so I, I agree with that point absolutely, Jack. What I don't necessarily agree with is that um, is that. When you bring in that guy in at the end, you're not necessarily bringing him at the right part of the lineup. And then when you bring him in the first um, in the inning, you know you're facing the top. Now, Jack, you absolutely are correct that you don't want to bring in an inferior pitcher to replace a better one, which is why you don't you do want to use it against your fourth or fifth starter. You and you didn't say, it, by the way, you no. didn't say to bring in the closer. No, you also you, don't bring in your closer. You want to save that closer because the closer is actually a fairly precious resource that does get used reasonably correctly. Um, it's the setup people that are underused. That was my observation. And that was your point to bring in. You don't bring in the closer for the raise. You bring in Sergio. You bring in your, be- your second your- or third best uh, uh, reliever. And you don't replace your best two starters, typically, unless you have terrible top two starters. You have to save it for the bottom. Here's one other fact that I'll throw out that most people don't know. And I know most people don't know this because I only learned this recently. Not only is most people understand the first inning is where the most runs are scored. I don't think most people understand why, but but they that's true. So the ERA in the first inning is is higher than any other inning Great. due to the fact that you're you're pit, you're pitching against the best hitters. Yep. Here's one other fact. Okay. Um, in every inning, the home team scores more runs on average than. The away team. That's true. There's a home field advantage, and it's played out in runs scored in every single inning on average. But in the first inning, that advantage is twice as big, which is remarkable. Now, do I'm you throwing it out? That's a fact I just learned, and I checked it for the last twenty. So I years. just want to be clear for this for Morton Money. Here are Morton Money about what you're suggesting. First of all, if I look on the average run scored for the home team and the away team, first right. of all, you've you've made two comments. First, in every single inning. 
the home team scores more. On average. On average. On, on no, average. no, no, we're yes. talking about yeah. on average. Mm-hmm. And that differential between home and away is twice, twice as, as much big. in the first inning. That's right. Professor I'm, Weiner, I'm, 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 you, not, I'm not supporting. I'm not suggesting. I'm reporting. No, that is, I, I understand that. a statement. Well, that's why I was saying you, were dis- you weren't disagreeing with Jack's opinion. You were disagreeing with one point of his thing, which was an empirical fact. Right. But you're just saying it's a fact that more yeah. runs are scored in the first inning. Yeah. That's fine. Why? Oh, this is and it's interesting because after the Rays did this, I had a conversation with with some of the Rays management, particularly about like when to use this strategy, and the question became became why exactly the, this question as you you posed it to me why does the home team score so many more runs in the first inning and the answer that I'm going to start off with is I have no clue. Now I posed this question to various different people, and one answer I had from I an have actual, an answer. I have I got one answer can from guess, a player. Can I guess? You can guess it. Uh, go ahead. Okay. And I'll tell you what what I'm telling about to report after you comes from a player. So All right, I understand. That. As a matter of fact, it's going to le- my guess is going to be this is what a player would say. So. Look, but I'm going to ask you a question first. And by the way, I, the player's a hitter, so you can okay, think about it from that perspective. Okay. So I wasn't thinking about it from that perspective, but I could think of two perspectives why that might be true. Okay. I was thinking of it from the pitcher's perspective. Do you agree that a pitcher properly warmed up might be better than a pitcher that's not properly yes, warmed up? Okay. I would agree. So you agree with that? Okay. When the away team is batting first, the pitcher has warmed up in the bullpen, come straight on in. When the home, the home team, yes, that's yeah, right. When that's the away exactly. team is hitting. Yep. When the home team is hitting, I'm sure it's some blend of that. And maybe the pitcher finished their warm-up 5, 10, and 15 minutes before it and had to go into the dugout. So that's my theory. And why it would be, I'm not saying it's true or what the player said. I'm just giving a guess. It would explain why the difference is larger for the first inning because the home away pitch, the home team pitcher doesn't have that doesn't have that, that, that disability that have to have to sit in the dugout. Is my guess, Professor Weiner, correct? Um, yes, it is. It actually is. But it's the second reason that was given. So, and it was the second one that was given. So, I actually would give you tremendous kudos for figuring that out. Wow, I'm feeling really good about my. Th- not as good as me. Not as good as you should about Brian from Madison, Wisconsin, saying you're <laughs> kind of the reason he loves work Moneyball. <laughs> but I'm not feeling too bad about myself. But also, thanks to our producer Matt Datz. So, um, he's just given me a statistic up on the screen here. Um, so, if you score first in the game, sorry, if you lead after the first inning. What do you think your team's winning percentage is in the game so far this season? Wow! If you li- if you conditional on leading after, of course. The- so no, it's, I want to br- see. I what I'm trying to do here in Wharton Moneyball. I just want to say for our listeners, Adi and I have been talking about some empirical facts today. We've been talking about some statistics, but now I want to translate this into the world of business or outcomes and winning. So now the question is, how much does it matter to lead after the first inning? Because maybe. I'll give you an example. Let's suppose the winning percentage after the first inning, if you're leading, is 510 versus 500. You're like, that didn't do much. No. The effect size is small. I'm asking you to guess. Conditional on leading after the first inning. What's a team's winning okay, percentage? So, so no ties and no... Um, and That's not, right, not no, tied. No ties. So I'm leading some, after the so first you, inning. You, you could either both score it and you scored more, or you, I would probably say it's it's about nearly 70%. Am I decent? Professor Weiner's on a hot streak today, my <laughs> man. And let me say to our listeners, I promise in my children's life, he cannot see my screen. I don't know. It's 718. 718. 718. So I just want to make sure our listeners know out there, if you can take a lead after the first inning, you would agree 718 is a pretty big effect oh, yes. size. Oh, I mean, I mean, that's, oh yes. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, what you're suggesting 
not only makes sense, this is my point, not only makes sense from a run scored perspective, I understand if you score more than the other team, you win the game. I understand that. But the mapping to winning the game, it's a massive effect. Yeah. Uh, you have you just you want to get in the lead. You just you do, and then uh, well, there's a lot going into this. And one of the things is that well, you know a lot of information. Not only do you have a lead, but you probably also have a good pitcher starting for you, and they probably have a weaker pitcher. So that you have to kind well, of yeah, yeah. Infer, I mean, given that you're in the lead, what right. does it say about the and, other? And team's the first pitcher? inning is so productive, runs wise, and so you actually learn a lot from that inning more than any other inning. You know, while we're still on baseball for our last few minutes of the last quarter here of Wharton Moneyball, and of course, uh, this is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with Professor Adi Weiner from the Statistics Department. We're here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM Radio, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you want to join the conversation, like our two callers, Brian from Madison and Jack from Philadelphia have already, you know how to do it. Call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at WMoneyBall. While we're still on baseball, I just wanted to talk about a few other things. How are you feeling about the Yankees and the Red Sox? I mean, right now, I mean, technically we're a half game behind. We have one less loss. Um, are you feeling like this is just going to be, it's just going to be this way the entire season? I do. Both teams look terrific. All right. I'm going to ask you a, an interesting statistics question here. Do we agree right now they're relatively even? I mean, they're even sure. record. Right. What do you think, and how would you even answer this? I'm, not, I'm asking you for a specific number, but I want to ask the question, and then I want to hear your thought process. There's no, I mean, there is no right answer per se. I just want to hear your thought process. If I now track from now, we've played 45 games, roughly, and I track things through the entire season, what will be the largest gap between the Yankees and the Red Sox? So I'm asking you to think, like, I'm just asking you, this is, by the way, I just want to make sure our listeners know, Adi is sweating only a little bit, because what I've asked him actually is a very hard statistics question to think about, about the largest deviation between two teams. Who are effectively equal. Right. But could you tell us, I know how I would compute it. I, I'll, I'll go first. How about we do the following while you sit there and think for a minute? Um, I could do it mathematically, but this is also something where I could obviously do it by simulation. All I have to do is start flipping coins. I'm not going to flip 50-50 coins because we have evidence that they're not 50-50, but I'm going to flip a whole sequence of coins for simulating the season going forward. And obviously, I can. each one will take a path over the 162 games, and I could take the difference between the Yankees and the Red Sox, and I could do this a whole large number of times. I would now have a distribution of largest difference. So that's the statistic I'm interested in, the largest difference between their wins. And now, with what probability are you looking for? Are you looking well, for a so, 75? or 95% probability or 50%? I mean, what, I mean, what am I flipping the coins No, with? in terms of uh, in how many... So, let, so let's put this more succinctly or precisely. You're saying we're imagining these two teams are equal, they're moving forward, and you want to know what is the biggest difference in in distance between the two teams between now and the end of the season. That's correct. With, say, 90% probability or obviously... With 99% probability. Yeah, so, you know, so, so the what, point so I raised to you, so what I'm going to do is, uh, I don't know um, right now sitting here, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to flip coins. Let's say I simulate one future season. I'll compute that difference. I'll do it 100,000 times. I'll have a distribution That's of right. the, of, ex, of uh, maximum difference between the two teams. And then I'll create a confidence interval where I'll take, let's say, the middle 95% of it and say, this is my belief about what the difference okay, is. So if I say, that, so my, my guess would be the middle 95% would be about six games. 
was the gap. So you think plus or minus yeah. six will be the largest? Ninety-five percent. Well, so Matt, yeah. our producer is going to write that down because we we test our predictions here on Martin Moneyball. By the way, although I reviewed my predictions from over under last week and I'm not doing too well, so we may we may start, we'll get back to those in the, end of, start, in the last half hour because I'm doing terrific. I know you are, and I'm not doing so well. But let me just say, I think we're going to start this week counting predictions, not from last week. But this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We have two guests coming up. We have 90 minutes to go. Please join us again right after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. Thanks to our associate producer and our friend Dion Simpkins. I can always count on the music he's playing to get me excited in the morning, so thank you for that, Dion. Um, again, this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my friend and co-host this morning, Professor Adi Weiner from the statistics department. So, Adi, obviously we've talked some basketball this morning already. We've talked some baseball this morning already. But I think as all of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball know, um, I'm actually, I love the, both those sports, but I'm also equally, I'm, I'm a fanatical tennis fan. You I, sure are. I love tennis. I love playing the I, game. I, I loved it too when I was in high school, but I've, the, uh, I stopped playing in high school, so I'm not quite as uh, into it as I once was. Yeah, I just, I love the sport. I love everything about it. I love the strategy in the sport, etc. But you're not here to hear me talk about tennis. We're here to talk with our next guest, Craig O'Shaughnessy, about tennis. Uh, Craig is widely recognized as one of the world leaders in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. Uh, Craig specializes in, in this area of the sport. Uh, he created uh, Brain Game Tennis. We've obviously spoken to Craig before here on Wharton Moneyball. And so, Craig, uh, welcome to the show. This is Eric Brown. And I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Hey, good morning, Craig. It's great to talk to you again. Um, could you tell us, um, one of the questions I always like to ask is, you know, all of our uh, guests here on Wharton Moneyball, and I'm sure many of our listeners want to know this, like, how did you get into this? Could you start just with a little bit about your background, both academic, professional, and otherwise, and how that leads you to a life of teaching, analyzing, and talking about tennis strategy? Yeah, well, it, it's interesting is that both of you guys um, have a love of statistics and, and obviously as part of that, a love of math. When I was in high school, I almost failed math. I, it was my worst subject. I hated going to that period um, and, and studying stats and math and everything that goes on with it. I like the English side. I like the writing. I have a journalism degree. But when I got heavily involved in tennis, and tried to figure out what mattered most to winning. You, know, you look at nutrition, you look at fitness, you look at technique, you look at technology. It was very evident to me that the strategy of our game, where the ball goes much more than, than how you hit it, um, matters the most. And so I've got to figure out, okay, which strategies are better in our sport? It's statistics, it's numbers, it's percentages. And you know, I've always said numbers of the language of tennis, the, the more we know the percentages of um, the, the various elements of our sport, you know, we have serving, returning, rallying, approaching, is it better to serve out wide than down the tee? Is it better to hit a forehand or a backhand? Is it better to come to the net or stay back? These are questions as a young coach that I wanted answers for in a sport that had no answers. It was very much opinion, very much guesswork. You get 100 coaches in a room Looking at a tennis match, you are definitely going to get 100 different opinions. So I got some Dartfish software, uh, a match tagging program within that, and started doing a lot of analysis. And very much became involved in the math side and the stats side of our game. So it, 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 it evolved from wanting to know how 
I could teach my players to win more matches. So, Craig, if this is Adi Weiner, I, I heard your 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 uh, observation that you were an English person and not a math person when you were yeah. in high school. I will point out that I failed math ninth grade, one uh, one of the quarters, <laughs> and it was simply because I just I was wasn't able to engage in what was being taught. So, yeah. so you might have secretly been a math person. You just didn't find the particular <laughs> mathematics that you were being taught at the time as interesting. Uh, uh, all right, well, Craig, this is Eric Brown. I'm going to take over here. I mean, yeah. you guys could commiserate on your failure. <laughs> grades and ninth grade math. But let's, we actually have the French Open coming up. So the first question I want to ask you, I have a thousand questions for you, but let me yeah. start with the first one. How is it possible that one person, Rafa Nadal, mm-hmm. could be so great on this surface? He's not just the king of clay. He's the king. He's the prince. He's the everything of clay. I've never in all my years, I'm 51 years old, I've been watching tennis from I, the I'm glory days. How can, You're 51 as well, and so, so am I. I. Actually, we have, <laughs> hey, we've got that in common. We've got it all. We've got it all here. <laughs> how does someone, how is he so great on clay? Is it the spin of his shots? Is it the placement of his shots? Is it his movement? Is it his ability to slide? How can one player be so much greater than everybody else on a given surface? Yeah, he is. He's found another level at the moment. I think the first thing to put on the table is that players, their form rises and their form drops. You know, a couple of years ago, um, you know, Nadal on clay wasn't doing so well. He was struggling like crazy. I remember watching the Madrid final against Andy Murray, and uh, it was almost embarrassing how bad he was playing. You know, he, he's he's back. He's playing well, and our eyes. You know, a lot of people all over the world are going to look at Nadal and say, he's the king of the long rally. He's, you know, he, he torches you from the back of the court. Yes, his spin is amazing. But, you know, when you go, a couple of other things to, to consider here. I'm flying over to Paris on uh, Saturday. I'll be there Saturday morning. Saturday afternoon, I'm going to walk out onto Philippe Chatrier to that court. Our idea of a clay court is that we can reach down with our hands and, and, and get some loose clay on the surface and put our two hands together and then cup, you know, a, a substantial amount of loose clay into our hands. It's simply not true. You've got to bring almost a shovel over to that cord to start scraping it to find anything loose on the top of that surface. So, so it's a hard cord. It just happens to be a clay hard cord. Exactly. Wait. So, so, exactly. so uh, this is Adi Weiner again. Uh, can you yeah. clarify to me that for me, as who's not doesn't know as much about tennis as Eric and and you obviously do, the clay is is supposed to be slower. That's my understanding. And so, and you, what you're saying is it's not a slower surface. That no, my, it's my, it's not. So then, what it's is? A- so then, what makes it different? I mean, why is Nadal unbeatable on clay and obviously not unbeatable on all the other surfaces? Well, There's something yeah, there. Very good point. Um, he, remember, he did win the U.S. Open last year, so the guy's not Okay, but he's won f- how many clay He's got, courts, just so right? everybody, yeah. just so our listeners who are in Wharton Moneyball know, um, he's got 10 French Open titles, and he's only got six other majors. <laughs> in <laughs> total, and all the others. No, other, no, so. I'm saying, I understand that, but still, let's not make it seem like, I mean, if but he his only probability ha- of winning the French is like 80%. All right, by the way, let's have, Craig, we'd love to hear your answer, but let's not make it seem like Nadal, even yeah. if he took away his 10 French Opens, he'd still be one of the greatest 20 players yeah. of all yeah, times. Exactly. But exactly. please, if you you could tell us your thought about the clay versus other surface differential. Yeah, good point. Um, at every single level of our game, and, and this is something that IBM, 
um, I, I first started looking at what they were doing back in 2015, and it's the length of the rally. And, you know, we, we as tennis players and coaches and fans of the game, we watch points being played, and we see short points, we see medium points, we see long points. It has never really occurred to us to figure out, is there a dominance effect by winning if you win more of the short points or you win more of the long points? You know, when we look at the practice court and as coaches, we are constantly telling our players that consistency rules our world, that getting more balls in the court is good, that shot tolerance is amazing. And, but once you break down the numbers... And the 2015 Australian Open is when I started with this. You find that the rally length of zero through four, and the zero represents a double fault. And it's important to understand this at the beginning. The way IBM calculate rally length is the ball must land in the court for it to count. So if I serve to you, it's in. You return to me, it's in. And I hit a winner, rally length of three. But if I make an error on that third shot, it's counted as a rally length of two. So that's that, that's an important thing to, to know at the start. How okay, they, how so they what do we, yeah, what do we know about, um, let's call it, the top-tier players and winning at various lengths? Great, great question. So even in girls, the same for Nadal on clay, for Federer on grass, for girls 12, somewhere played here in Austin, Texas, where I am, two kangaroos playing on the dark side of the moon. It doesn't matter. The 0 through 4 rally length is the number one rally length in our sport. So that's a serve, a return, and the two shots that follow, serve plus one and return plus one. More points end in the first two touches than anything else. So when we go back to the Rome final, which happened on Sunday, the number one... And I'll ask you guys, did you see that match, by the way? I watched the entire match. Matter of fact, I think I watched every match in that tournament. But yes, I did see that match, and I felt bad because uh, maybe you could, uh, we'll talk about this. Let's finish this thought. Let me just tell you, I felt bad because I thought that if that rain delay hadn't happened, the momentum was on Zverev's side, and he was going to win that match. Okay, so in in that final, there there was some double faults. There was two double faults. So we have two double faults in the zero rally length. Um, The long rallies, we had two rallies that were 20 shots long. So what do you think was the mode? And I had a... I think it was about a 12-year-old boy tell me this once. I'm like, I'm doing a presentation. I asked the audience, what is the most common rally length in tennis? This little boy at the back goes, oh, you mean the mode? I'm like, well, I guess I do. That's what I mean. So you sat there and watched it. You saw all those rallies. You saw the long rallies and the grinding rallies. Which rally length? Was the most common so let, let Adi and I each guess. This is Eric Bradlow. Yeah. And by the way, for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, this is Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. Uh, we're talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy uh, from Brain Game Tennis. Craig is one of the world leaders in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy, and we're talking about the French Open. If you want to join the conversation, if you have a question for Craig, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So I have two guesses. Um, two guesses? Well, you I, get one guess. I'm going to give you my, my <laughs> most likely guess, but but here was the first two thoughts that entered my mind. One is um, the modal is you win a point on the serve, and so that would be a rally length of one, I guess. 
The other one would be that you win it in three, which means you serve, the other guy gets the return back somehow, some way, and then the next ball is put away. So if you had to make me guess, I'm going to say three. Adi Weiner, you go ahead. I feel like I should have jumped in first because I'm not the tennis expert. I agree, and I thought of those two things exactly. So One or three. but we're- one, one, I went with one as, as the modal. Remember, they're probably not that frequent. So, And remember, when you think about mode, it's maybe probably 15% of all well, rallies. And that's partly what that I think way. Craig's going to talk to us about. The mode could be, mode is the most common by definition, but it doesn't mean it has to happen more than 50% but the thing of the is, time. But those 20, long, those, those are much longer. You, you feel like they happen I know, all, all but, And that's of, Craig's point. So Craig, yeah. tell us, which, was either of us right or are we close at all? Well, I'm going I'm to lead in with, with just a little bit of history here. Last year, I was down at IMG Boletari at the Academy, and Nick Boletari gets up very early in the morning, 5 o'clock on the court every day. So I get up for breakfast around 6, and I walk out there to the court, and he's on the court, and I start talking to him about this. So I go, Nick, what is the number one rally length of tennis? And he looks at me and says, Craig, no one's ever asked me that question. That's interesting to me. So he had a guess, and he guessed four. He said, I bet four shots in the court happen more than anything else. Last November, I was in L.A. with Novak Djokovic. We were preparing the, the upcoming season. I asked Novak the exact same question. Novak, what do you think the number one rally length of tennis? They say, he says four. I just spent the last week traveling all over Italy. I went to six different cities from the north to the south. I had all of these elite coaches that I was delivering the new analytics in our game. The most common answer was, was in the three, four, or five range. Gentlemen, you are 100% correct. In the Rome final, on clay with Nadal, the number one rally length that occurred the most was a rally length of one. It happened 23 times. We think the long rallies, I'll I'll pick one here, an eight-shot rally. An eight-shot rally happened nine times. A six-shot rally happened eight times. A two-shot rally happened nine times. Our eyes remember the long, spectacular running you know, the, the great winners. But the serve in and it not coming back happens. The, it's the most Very common. common. Yeah. So, level it so, so, Craig, since we're also, a, I don't say a business show, but you also have in your description of what you do is about strategy. So that would suggest two things to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong. One is um, if I want to improve as a player, number one, improve my serve. Number two, improve my return ability. Like, in other words, that may give you the largest delta just because those are the most frequent points. Is that, a, is that an imp- inappropriate way of thinking about it? Or, or what's the implication of what you're saying? It's ab- absolutely perfect. So w- when you look globally at our practice court, 50 minutes, you know, the most common thing is you go out there for one hour with your coach. And you spend, on average, everywhere around the world, 50 minutes practicing forehands and backhands until the cows come home. And then the last 10 minutes, we'll get some token serving, um, some approach and volley, but the return of serve is the least practice shot in our sport. And when we see the numbers, the numbers clearly suggest that our practice court needs modifying. We should not be spending 50 minutes grinding and working on our 10-shot rallies and our 14-shot rallies. Yes, the serve is more important than we ever thought, and the return of serve especially, is what we need to work on more. But can you ask, answer the question we, I had a, about five minutes ago about why clay? What, why, does it make, why is Nadal better on clay? And what I think you're implying is it's not necessarily because he's better in the long rallies. Exactly, exactly. He, he wins. 
Nadal was the master of the short rally. And the 0-3-4 rally, I call, you know, the nickname is first strike. So what happens on clay that's a little different? The way your, your foot interacts on clay is different than the other surfaces. You're going to slide a lot on clay. So playing behind the player is much more efficient on clay than it is on other surfaces because it's tougher to stop and recover. The other thing is that the ball interacts. The granules of clay interact with the felt uh, more than they do on hardcore. So you get more bang for your buck with spin. Mm-hmm. So Nadal has so much spin on his serve, on his, on his forehand especially, and the ball, the grit of the ball will also make it slow down. So the way that Nadal has figured out for him that works best, to return serve, he stands back almost to the fence, and he lets the ball slow down uh, from the serve, and he takes a full-blooded crack at that shot. And the guy is so strong, he can get it deep. But our eyes see him standing back there at the start of the point, but we, we don't see him at the end of the point where he's always up around the baseline or inside the baseline. He chooses to make an insane amount of returns by moving back and letting the return slow down and, and take the pressure, the time pressure, and the core position pressure out of it. So, Craig, we only have a few more minutes with you. I wanted to talk about the actual t- um, upcoming French Open that's coming. So yeah. I was a little surprised to find out that um, Nadal, you know, we talk about betting lines all the time here on Wharton Moneyball, is basically you have to bet 300 to win 100 for, on Nadal, which means he's 75% odds of winning the title. I yeah. found that extraordinarily high. Um, number one, you never know injuries, other stuff. Um, number two, um, I, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, um, in the last 25 years of the French Open, the number one seed on the men's side has only won it four times, which is surprising to me, out of 25. Yeah. So do you think Nadal being a 75% chance to win the French is about right? Uh, I think it should be higher. Higher? Why is that? Yeah, Because he's, I put a lot of um, emphasis on the form coming in. Uh, and, and his form is outrageous. I mean, he may, he's putting up numbers this year that, that, uh, that are as good as they've ever been. But one thing to also understand, remember we talk about the 0-3-4 rally link being so dominant. Who is the number one player in the history of our game with second serve points won? Who would you guess? Second serve points won. Yeah. yeah. Um, would, would you take Sampras, Becker, Goran? I would have... Karlovic? Yeah, I was actually going to, I would have guessed, actually, I'm sure I'm off. I would have actually guessed someone like a John Isner just because of how much he actually goes for his second serve. But you're telling me it's none of those people. So you're going to tell me it's Nadal. It's Nadal. That's unmo- that, that's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> it's Nadal. Yeah. Who is, and I think he's number two in the history of our sport with second serve return points one. So he's just so incredibly good at the start of the point. And then the end of the point, he's also very good. Uh, a couple of years ago, when he won, I think it was 2009, I'm, I'm guessing now, but back back around then, I was in Canada, in Toronto, and he's in form, and he says a comment in, a, in, a, in an interview, he goes, yeah, I'm really setting myself for, for, um, for the U.S. Open. So I had a bet with a guy sitting next to me. I said, I will give you the field. I will take one guy for the U.S. Open. I'll take Nadal, and I'll give you everybody else. And I feel exactly the same way this year. I'll Despite Nadal, we only have about two twenty-seven. Yeah, we only have about two minutes left. But I want to ask you about that. Do you agree? You, you we both saw the final in uh, Madrid last week, or Madrid, right? Madrid last weekend. Uh, Rome last week. Madrid. Rome. Rome. Sorry, Rome. You agree with me? 
that it looked like Zverev was going to win that match, correct? Yes. And despite yes, that, no rain. yeah, if there was no rain. So, but yeah. despite that, you're still taking Nadal against the field. Is it because number one, that's a three set match? Let's play. Let's play at five and see what happens. Or you just felt like even then? I mean, the reality is Nadal did win the match. We can talk about any hypothetical you want, but Nadal won the match. There's a thing in our sport where you get when you get ahead, you start reaching for the finish line. Mentally, you stop focusing on the the here and now tactics, and you just you reach for the finish line, and you start having thoughts of, like, I've already won the match. And I think that's what happened to Nadal in that final. He was 6-1 in the first set. Things were going so smoothly, so easily. And he takes his foot off the accelerator a little bit, and all of a sudden he's down at, down at uh, 6-1 in the second and down a break in the third. Rain comes, goes to the locker room, says to himself, you know, the coaches have a thought. It's like, Rafa, just go and play your game. Hit the ball. Be aggressive. Do your normal things. Got his head right back on it. Won five straight games. Won five straight games to finish that match. There there you go. I don't think, and I think that was a great little dress rehearsal. Those problems can pop up. It popped up in the Rome final. I do not expect it to pop up again in in Paris. Maybe just in 30 seconds, since we only have 30 seconds left, there is the other side of the draw. There's just the women's side of the draw. Anybody you like, particularly in the women's side, it appears wide open to me. I have no clue whatsoever who's going to win the women's side. I have no clue. I mean, uh, how, how about that? I'll pull Halep out of the bag. I watched her up a set and a break last year in the final. She got mad. She got upset. She lost it. She'll, hopefully she can go the extra yards this year. Well, Craig, um, first of all, thank you for all the knowledge you shared with us here on Wharton Moneyball today. Uh, we've been talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy, uh, world leader in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. Uh, you can find him on Brain Game Tennis. So, uh, Craig, thank you for joining us here this morning on Wharton Moneyball. My pleasure. So, uh, I mean, it's just fascinating to me that, you know, that he would take, you know, the entire... Nadal against the field. And let me just throw out one thing. What is he, 33, 34 years old? No, 31. Oh, Nadal's only 31 years old. 31. So he's, at the scheme of things, he's relatively young. Remember we used to think 29 was was over the hill for tennis? Well, (laughs) well, first of all, we know it's not over the hill for being a statistician. No, it's not. No, it is not. (laughs) So this has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We have another half to go. We're going to talk about baseball. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. So please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor Adi Weiner from the Statistics Department. Some combination of Adi, myself, Shane Jensen, and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School, and we're replayed throughout the week. And, of course, you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. And, of course, we've been having a great set of conversations this morning with you, our fans. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We also have gotten, in the last just in the last hour, we've gotten some emails, which we'll hope to get to in the last half hour on business radio at SiriusXM.com. And we've also been tweeted at, at our Twitter handle, which is at WMoneyBall. So our next guest, Jay Jaffe, um, who's a senior writer at Fangrass, formerly of Sports Illustrated. He's also the creator of Jaws and the author of the Cooperstown Casebook. I think for anybody that's listened to us here on Wharton Moneyball for the last four years now, knows there is no topic that I love more, talking about more. I love tennis, thanks to Craig O'Shaughnessy. I love the NFL. I love the NBA. 
but I love talking about the Hall of Fame in the baseball. baseball Hall of Fame. No, and no, you know, I, and I you know said, that I follow right, right behind I you said on that the conversation. Baseball <laughs> Hall of Fame, and so I could not be happier to have Jay Jaffe joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. So, Jay, welcome to the show. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host Adi Weiner. Hi, thanks. Uh, good to be here. Great. It's great to have you on the show. So. First, could you tell our listeners, why don't we start with the following? Why don't we just talk to you, talk to our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball about JAWS? So what is it, sure. and what are you hoping to accomplish with it? And then we'll talk about your book, uh, the Cooperstown Casebook. But let's start with JAWS. What is okay. it, and what are you hoping to accomplish? JAWS is the Jaffe Wins Above Replacement score. Uh, it is a method uh, of comparing players uh, who are candidates for the Hall of Fame against those who are already in the Hall of Fame uh, using uh, two wins above replacement measures. Uh, one being their career total of war, uh, and their other being the, what I call their peak total of war, uh, which is their seven best seasons at large. Um, what I found in the Hall of Fame, and this is research that goes back to uh, the winter of 2003 and 2004 and uh, has continued every year, uh, is that you know there's some players who were in there uh, because they stuck around for a long time, things like that, uh, and then there are some players who... Uh, thrive for shorter periods of time, uh, but maybe just have the so, Jay, we're gonna, we have a rough connection. We're going to call you right back in just a second. Of course, uh, you and I being Yankee fans, Adi, with, um, you know, we always, I was, you know, obviously we're going to, I'm going to go towards Derek Jeter. You know, was he a, you know, eh, the guy just picked up three or four wins for 20 years. You add it up and it gets to 60. Or, you know, what was his peak performance? But actually, I'm glad he talked about the two dimensions because I've always been. These are been, the two dimensions. I know, but I've right. always been a peak guy. Like, I want you to be the best well, at you, your you position. Well, you have argued. I'm going to summarize your, your argument. Yes. Your argument is that in order to be in the Hall of Fame, you have to have a long career and a short and a peak Correct, and it's very, very rare that you find someone without without a without a piece of both, and that's why I think, for example, Messina coming, who's who's been, who's I think a very interesting candidate to think about. He doesn't have that dominance piece, but he's had that career piece, and he's been very, very extreme, particularly in the modern era, on that score. Of course, Adi, who cares what you and I think? Fortunately, Jay Jaffe is back <laughs> he's on back. the line. Okay. So, Jay, um, you mentioned the two dimensions, and you heard Adi and I probably just talking about them. Which do you? I mean, just both personally and and to use it to predict who. Who's going to get into the Hall of Fame? Which do you seem to care about more? Is it total wins above replacement, or is it you know the seven-year peak period? Well, I think peak is very important to be mindful of because it has a big a, a big impact on the perception uh, that we have uh, of who belongs in the Hall of Fame. Now, in using wins above replacement, I am trying to get past the the uh, uh, tremendous variations in scoring you know in scoring levels that have happened throughout the course of baseball history and the, and the park to park variations. So you could put somebody who, in fact, did have a very high peak and short career like Sandy Koufax uh, in the proper perspective. Um, you know, I think the traditional view of Sandy Koufax is he was the greatest pitcher ever because he put up these low ERAs, but he was pitching in a very uh, uh, supportive environment in Dodger Stadium, uh, first of all, where the, where the mound was high and where scoring levels were low, and in the mid-60s when uh, league-wide scoring levels were low. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to be mindful of both. Jaws is, in fact, the average of the two, uh, and I compare each player, uh, each candidate, to uh, the players uh, at the position, uh, the average of the players at the position who are already in the Hall of Fame to, to get an idea of where a guy fits. And I will, you know, note, well, this guy is, you know, fifth in peak, uh, but maybe only tenth in career, uh, but his overall Jaws uh, score is, uh, 
uh, you know, just just above the average. That's somebody who I would recommend uh, the voters choose uh, when they're filling out their ballots, and that's essentially the form uh, that my advocacy takes. Now, JAWS doesn't take into account uh, postseason stuff and awards and things like that, which are also, I think, considerations, historical uh, importance, uh, you know, absence due to military service and the color line, uh, all of which I think, you know, uh, voters should bring to the case uh, when uh, considering whether or not to uh, to choose a guy for the hall. So let me fire off with the first question, then I'll turn it over to Adi, who I'm sure has many questions. Many. Um, <laughs> let me start with the first one just for me. Um, what's the predictive validity of JAWS? So when you look at it and you look at, say, so what do us, what, we're not voters, but what do those stupid voters think? How well does it actually predict yeah, who gets it, in? It is, I think it, I designed it less to be predictive and more to be prescriptive. Great. Um, you know, it, it does have a certain measure of, 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 of predictiveness. Uh, all of the, you know, I, th- I think I would say maybe 90% of the guys who are in the top 10 uh, at their positions and who are eligible are in the Hall of Fame, uh, with the exceptions of those who have uh, the stigma of uh, uh, connections to performance-enhancing drugs attached to them, which is obviously ha- has been a huge issue uh, in the voting over the past decade or so. Uh, guys like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens being on the outside looking in. Um, there are exceptions uh uh, in terms of uh, who the voters have turned their nose up to, guys like Bobby Gritch, who's in the top ten in second baseman, uh, and uh, uh, Scott Rowland, who just hit the ballot last year and is in the top ten of third baseman, uh, have uh, uh, struggled to gain uh, acceptance, and, and, Gritch and Gritch fell off the ballot. I was a little bit worried about Rowland falling off the ballot, and I'm still not convinced he's going to last very long. But, um, you know, so there, there are, you know, players who... I think have combinations of uh, high defensive value and high value from like things like walks and uh, base running uh, don't necessarily fare as well in front of the voters, uh, but they do fare well on you know wins above replacement, which is trying to measure all those things, um, you know, and which is what underlies Jaws. So I'm going to ask you about uh, your your choice of war. So you you obviously have decided that war is a terrific number is a measure. Let me just uh, um, I'm, this is Adi Weiner. Um, and you like it because it integrates all these components. So someone, you have your, your offense, you have your defense, you have your ERA adjustment, your error adjustment, not ERA, your error adjustment, you have your ballpark, yeah. you have your defense, you have your base running, double play avoidance, uh, your arm strength. I mean, all these things get integrated into one number. The problem with it is that outside of your basic offensive numbers, all those adjustments are very hard to do and very hard to do accurately, and they can produce very odd results. So why do you stick with war in, 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 instead of the more traditional statistics, particularly with players who are older where you don't have any of the, the data that you have for a current? Well, you do have some of the data, and, and, and some of it you, you, know, you, can, you can sort of work backwards. I mean, you're, you're working with best estimates here. Um, and, you know, I think instead of paying lip service to defense, Oh, like oh, you know this guy hit 260, but he was a great shortstop, and they all said so at the time. Um, you know, we could actually say, well, what is the value of a great shortstop? You know, in Ozzy Smith's case, it's it's enough to put him in the top ten. Uh, you know, despite uh, uh, his offense, and and even once you look at say, um, you know, just uh, his batting average, you know, you see he's got a, a respectable on base percentage, and he contributed a huge amount on the base paths. Um, measuring offense is not a hard thing to do. Um, you know, you'll see agreement across multiple metrics uh, in general, you know, who's above average. And, and I think you can differ when it comes to how you deploy park factors and things like that. Um, 
But you're going to get pretty close uh, across methodologies when you're measuring offense. It's defense that's a little bit trickier. Uh, and, you know, when we, in the eras before play-by-play metrics or before play-by-play data, uh, you know, we're doing a little bit more hand-waving uh, in trying to get those values. But, you know, underlying that is still uh, a, um, you know, a set of assumptions that are built in and that I, th- that I think hold up under scrutiny about, you know, the relative values of, uh, you know, the skill position, shortstop, catcher, uh, center field versus the easier defensive positions, the outfield corners and first base in particular, uh, you know, and the levels of offense that are needed to support those guys to be uh, league average players or above replacement level players, um, you know, which that, that's doing a lot of the work uh, for us in defining, you know, how these, play, you know, how these players stack up. Um, you know, and we're adjusting for scoring levels uh, and ballparks, which, again, you know, when you're talking about offense, is not incredibly difficult to do. Uh, you know, I think you want to remember, uh, you know, most of all, what, what the scoring environment is. So, you know, if you're talking about a low-scoring environment, a guy who has lots of stolen bases and great defense is going to have a little bit more value, um, you know, if, he, if he's hitting well than – uh, than if he's playing at Fenway Park in the in in the 2000s and and uh, it's like a pinball machine. So we're talking to Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangraphs, formerly of Sports Illustrated. He's also the creator of Jaws and the author of Cooper Ta- Cooperstown Casebook. If you want to join the conversation and talk to Jay uh, again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Adi Weiner. You can call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. If you have your favorite player and you'd like to ask Jay about his thoughts about uh, his Hall of Fame potential, so let's talk about some current players. And then I want to move on to someone's people that are up for ballot soon. So uh, you recently wrote a piece about Mike Trout. Um, I, re- I, re- I read a recent piece about Mike Trout as well, a different one, maybe than yours. There are about five in this last week. Yeah, but there was one that said, like, he's having the greatest war season of all time. Um, where's your assessment of Mike Trout? And I always like to ask the hypothetical, if the player were to stop playing today, is the player a Hall of Famer? So wh- what do you think about Mike Trout? Well, what I, what I wrote about yesterday at Fangraphs was that Mike Trout has actually reached the Jaws standard for center fielders. Mike Trout's t- two and a half months shy of his 27th birthday. He's already got, I think, the, the, the uh, uh, fifth best score uh, of all time among center fielders, trailing only Willie Mays, Ty Cobb, Mickey Mantle, and Tris Speaker. And yet he's only, you know, that's, his seven best seasons are the fifth most valuable collection of seven seasons. So are you saying he's more valuable than Joe DiMaggio? Uh, over the course of a of a of a seven season span, and that is oh a seven season span. Okay, yeah, his I best see. seven seasons. Right, I see. Six full seasons plus a quarter of two others. His mm-hmm. 2011 Cup of Coffee, uh, and and this one, and he's had you know he's already worth uh, four wins above replacement this year uh, by by the Baseball Reference version. Yeah, well, we'll and, talk about that in a minute. Yeah, and so, <laughs> you know he's got the two two seasons of of uh, more than ten you know more than ten more. Um, so. By that measure, he's he's fifth, and by the overall Jaws measure, which is the average of that in his career numbers, uh, he is eighth. Um, if now he's not technically qualified for the Hall of Fame right now, in that uh, you need ten full seasons, no, ten seasons played or parts of ten seasons played to be eligible, uh, and then you you also have to clear the the five year waiting period. So um, you know, so by that token, you know, if Mike Trout were to you know retire to become a meteorologist. Uh, technically, he would not be eligible for the Hall of Fame uh, unless the uh, the Hall board agreed to grant him a waiver uh, for 
the minimum number of seasons and then allow him to be put on the on the writer's ballot or something like that. There's only one instance that that's happened, uh, and it was for the Veterans Committee, and that was Addie Joss, who died of tuberculosis uh, in 1911. Uh, before he could complete it. Interesting. So just, so just before that. I turn it over to Adi, just a quick follow-up to that. Um, who had a better seven-season stretch? Is he the Sandy Koufax of batters? Was Sandy Koufax's seven seasons better than Mike Trout's? <coughs> no. Um, I, Mike Trout has had a, uh, a better seven seasons than Sandy Koufax. Now, like, like I said, with Sandy Koufax, first of all, he's got about five seasons. Um, he doesn't have and, seven. Uh, and you know, five great seasons, and, and and the rest are you know not great. And even and, some of those five are, are are a little bit injury shortened. And then the starch is taken out of them somewhat by the by, by the, the era, yeah. era adjustment. Yeah. So his his peak score actually is is only around uh, the average for the pitchers. And the pitchers are, it's on a slightly different scale than the hitters. Um, but more or less, a fifty jaws is is, is Pedro number one in terms of pitchers in terms of uh, seven year peak score. Say that again. Is Pedro Martinez number one in terms of no, this? No, it's it's uh, Walter Johnson. Walter Johnson. Okay, well, yeah, it's the era that makes it hard. By the because I was throwing out Pedro it, because it and, and, he was in know, the. I think that there's there there are reasons that you can maybe uh, I think uh, uh, mentally adjust uh, the pre-integration numbers yourself and say, well, you know what what uh, when you when you look what what Jaws what Jaws and Ward don't have is. Uh, the kind of era adjustment that I think uh, truly accounts for uh, the the rising level of competition, you know, where we've got a larger player pool, we've got integration, and we've got Latin American and Asian players. Yeah, but on the, the other hand, pool. on the other hand, you have football and basketball and all the other sports that drive on. These were non-existent sports, you know, back well, in the day, too. and so, that, that that's another factor. So, Jay, let me yeah, ask you, let me ask you about some other current players just to get your reaction. I'll sure. fire off three right now. So let's just maybe go through rapid fire round. Let's talk Justin Verlander. How is he looking? Justin Verlander is is making some progress here now uh, because of the workload constraints. Uh, you know, five man rotations, uh, active bullpens, uh, pitch counts, things like that. Uh, it's very hard for current starting pitchers to uh, accumulate the kind of numbers that even a Messina uh, or a Schilling accumulated. Um, you know, in a in a in a more uh, robust workload era, but he is. Uh, third among active pitchers in Jaws, um, and showing the signs that he's going to have the longevity to at least approach the the uh, average peak score uh, of the Hall of Fame starters. Uh, he's he's going to need to you know to to stay healthy this season and, and next season. I think he'll he'll probably you know if he does that, he's going to get to three thousand strikeouts, uh, and I think he'll be in good shape. Let me ask you two more players. Let's one. Uh, how about we're a Yankees team? How about CC Sabathia? Sebastia is just behind Verlander in the rankings, uh, a couple points behind. He's got a lower peak uh, than yes, Verlander. Yeah. I'm less optimistic about him making it, but he does have the counting stats uh, that are that are that are closer. 239 career wins. He just got uh, uh, he's he's at 2,800 and something strikeouts. I'd like to see him get to 3,000 strikeouts. He'd only be the third lefty to get there. Uh, I think that's a nice little bullet point in his favor. Um, but uh, he doesn't have quite the momentum that Verlander does. And maybe the last one, then I'll turn it over to Adi. How about a person that just got suspended for 80 games? Was Robinson Cano? He was on his way. Was I he on guess, his way? Yeah. Was he? Was, yeah, was, was, were we going to see him in the Cooperstown case, Cooperstown case book if he hadn't had this issue? You know, I well, I I did uh, I did do a brief on him uh, saying that it sounded like you know it looked like he was on his way uh, because he's probably going to get to 3,000 hits. He's at 2,417 uh, and five and a half years to go on his contract, but. Um, you know, we've, we have yet to see a player who was suspended 
uh, by the league for PEDs get in, and I'm not particularly optimistic about uh, the, the uh, chances for, say, Manny Ramirez or Alex Rodriguez. So I think Robinson Cano is in big trouble. Oh, yes. So, and he would have done well. Okay. So this is Adi. I have a couple, I have a zillion questions I could ask you as well. I'm going to ask you a uh, first question related to Mike Trout, and I want you to get, to get your reaction to this observation. So I want you to think of two uh, Angels players. We'll think of Mike Trout and Shohei Otani right now. Obviously, Otani's all over the place where everybody's talking about him, and Trout, we consistently talk about. But I went to baseball reference and I looked something up. And what, and this, this, this bothered me. If you look only at the defensive component of Mike Trout, it's higher than Otani's contribution on either side. In yeah. other words, Otani has produced less than one war on the at-bat side and the offensive and less than one war on the, on the defensive side. And Mike Trout, according to Baseball Reference, has produced more than one war defense alone. What is your take? Is your take that, we're, that Otani is not as valuable as we thought, he's being used improperly, or maybe this war thing on the defensive side is not, not accurate? Or that Mike Trout is preventing a lot of runs. There's a huge value in playing center field well. Um, but more know, than what Otani's produced on either side? Yeah, but uh, Otani's <laughs> a DH. He's not playing defense. There's, you know, I know that, but he's, but he's hitting the much, cover off the ball. You can support a much higher standard of, of, of offense. Uh, uh, at, at, you, know, you can be 20% below average offensively uh, and play above average defense and be uh, an average major league player in terms of your overall value. That, let's, I'm, let's, I'm thinking of, say, Byron Buxton right now. Um, has got tremendous skills, but has not really uh, learned to be a consistent hitter. He's still a, you know, a, more or less a, a league average player be, or because he's so great in center field. Now, Otani, let's also remember, Otani is a part-time player. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's not playing, he's not DHing on the days he's, hit, he's pitching or on, you know, the day either side of that. So we're talking about a part-time DH. Yes, he's less than he's less than one win above replacement. It's you know he's done great within the limited chances that he's gotten, um, and he would project to be about a five win DH, which is something you don't see if he got six hundred plate appearances. But he's not going to get to six hundred plate appearances. So you know that's that, that that and that roster spot isn't doing isn't being maximized on the offensive side, which is you know a, a problem for the Angels who don't have that many good hitters. Um, you know, so his so, impact is, is, is modest there. Do you now, recommend that he should go play the outfield and be a full-time hitter I, and I abandon this I pitching thing? That that would ha- I don't know that that would be a, you know, a huge uh, gain for the Angels because it, would cost, it might cost him on the pitching side. Now, the, he's, he's, he's been worth more on the pitching side because... Uh, actually, the numbers, according to Baseball right. Reference, are the same. They're both just under one. He, uh, I calculated this yesterday. He's, according to Baseball Reference, if you sum his two components, he's the 51st-ranked player in the major leagues right now. And I'm yeah. wondering whether or not he'd be far more useful just picking one side and being more consistent. Well, you know, he can, he's not going to be starting more often uh, on, the, on, the, uh, on the pitching side. I mean, you might, you might have squeezed maybe one more start out of him to this point in the season. Um, I, you know, this, and there aren't any other pitchers who are squeezing this kind of value out uh, on the offensive side. You know, he's, uh, um, let's, let's remember, this, is, this, is, this guy's a 23-year-old uh, rookie, you know, as far, as far as Major League Baseball is concerned, he's combined for almost two wins. That's a, that's a great start. You know, this is we're we're a quarter of the way through the season, a little bit more than a quarter of the way through the season. That projects to a seven-war season. Uh, that's great. I mean, that you know, that's that's going to be 
uh, a top 10 total if he holds on. So, Jay, let's let's kind of move on, if you don't mind, to the current season. Um, obviously, I'd love to talk Hall of Fame the whole time. I, By the way, um, I, I would not have guessed on Wharton Moneyball that we'd be talking about actually someone whose career I actually followed was Adi Joss or the big train Walter Johnson. I'm glad that we brought them up because I'm a big baseball historian. But there's lots of going on that in this season of 2018. So let me just start at the beginning, which always involves the Yankees. So what's your assessment of the Yankees and the Red Sox and the AL East this year and how you see it playing out? And what data are you looking at beyond just, you know, well, they're both basically playing 700 ball. What are you looking at to forecast and how you're thinking about the rest of the season? Well, I mean, I think you've got two of the three strongest teams in the American League uh, besides the Astros. And, uh, um, you know, this is, this is kind of the, heavy, the heavyweight division here. Um, what I'm, you know, what I'm seeing with the Red Sox is a team that's uh, uh, second in scoring and uh, second in run prevention and has, uh, uh, you know, is getting uh, very good contributions from about half their lineup. I think there's a little bit, little bit of room for improvement there because they're not getting much at second base where Dustin Pedroia has been out. Uh, they're not getting any offensive catcher. Um, they're getting, you know, uh, very little offense from center field. But Mookie Betts and J.D. Martinez uh, uh, and Xander Bogarts have been great. Mitch Moreland's been surprisingly strong. Uh, the rotation at one point seemed to be firing on all cylinders, but uh, David Price has struggled a bit of, of late. Uh, Drew Pomerantz has not been uh, his best, but uh, we're seeing a very good version of Rick Porcello. We're seeing a, a surprisingly durable version of Eduardo Rodriguez and, of course, Chris Sale is the ace. Uh, the bullpen is a bit of an issue there. Uh, with the Yankees, uh, you've got a you know, the, the league's highest scoring team. Uh, their run prevention is uh, not as good as the as the Red Sox, but it's still third in the league. Uh, you're just seeing a juggernaut offense that where there's right now there's almost no place to hide. Um, Nothing. Tyler, Tyler Austin <laughs> has been doing a, a good job of covering up for the absence of Greg Bird. Uh, Glaber Torres has been everything. That he had another game. home run last night. Yeah, seven. I mean this guy's this kid's <laughs> on fire. Uh, you know, seven home runs so far. Uh, Miguel Andujar has done a, a very good job at third base. They've got depth issues. Depth issues in that they don't know how they're going to squeeze in uh, Greg Bird and Brandon Drury when they come back. I think Neil Walker, who's been on kind of a hot streak lately, but has still struggled overall. Uh, his roster spot is vulnerable. Uh, it's possible they may have to option Andujar or. Uh, Tyler Austin, who've both been you know, pretty good with the bat but are struggling with their on-base percentages. Um, the rotation is a little bit more, uh, I think, fragile. Uh, we haven't seen a very good version of Masahiro Tanaka. Uh, we saw a good start from Sonny Gray. His last couple outings have been okay, but uh, he has struggled mostly of late. Uh, they lost Jordan Montgomery to injury, and Domingo Herman, after a uh, six-no-hit inning debut, uh, has been knocked around in his last two starts. So the rotation is vulnerable. I think they're going to need an upgrade midseason. Uh, Luis Severino is clearly the ace. Sabathia is having a nice little revival, but uh, I think that they're a more fragile team uh, in that regard than, say, the Red Sox are. Uh, and that is the area that I'm watching when, you know, in terms of the balance between those two teams. Well, let's move on from the heavyweight division to the lightweight division. So we have a team leading its division <laughs> under 500. That's the Cleveland Indians. Um, they're right at five. They're back. Oh, at they five won. Hours. Okay, so they must have won last night because I yeah. knew they were. I didn't. St- I was staying up watching the basketball. I didn't. Wasn't following the Indians as carefully. Um, this is a question I've always wanted to ask someone that follows baseball as intently as you do. And I mean, a lot of people have this belief, and I just wanted your opinion. Come playoff time, let's suppose they win their division at 500. The Yankees or the Red Sox win their division at, you know, 96, 98 wins. Same for the Astros. Does it matter? Not a lot. 
It really doesn't. I mean, you know, one of the things when you're talking about uh, a short series, not only is there, you know, the variants can trump just about everything, uh, but you're talking about a different, you know, different distribution of playing time, particularly on the pitching side. The pitching depth is not as important. You know, you're using three or four starters in, in, a, in a short series. Uh, you're using ideally only your top maybe four relievers, uh, you know, except at garbage time. Um, it is a much different game in the postseason. And I think we're seeing some adjustments in terms of how starters are used, uh, you know, with bullpens uh, used uh, more frequently in the last couple of years. You could see, you know, teams stitching it together from the fourth inning on uh, if they've got the bullpen depth like, say, the Yankees do uh, and like have the Indians did before. Uh, their bullpen is, is, is very vulnerable right now. But it's entirely possible for, uh, let's say, an 82-win team to upend a 96-win team in the playoffs um, you know, if, if if everything falls right for them, absolutely. One, one of the things that I'm looking at right now, uh, when I look at the standings in the in the in the uh, AL Central, is that there are two teams who are just absolutely horrible: the the White Sox and the the Kansas City Royals. You know, heading for almost historically bad seasons. And this is uh, occurs to me that we don't do this in baseball. We don't do a a, a um, kind of a schedule-adjusted ranking because typically they're much more balanced and you don't have a, kind of a particular set of teams that get to feast on weak opponents. But in the Central, you play, you're going, if you're in the Central, you'll be playing the White Sox and the Royals much more frequently than the Yankees will, who will be playing each other much more. So I'm wondering whether it's, it's time to roll out maybe at Fangrass a uh, schedule-adjusted ranking like they do in football and in, certainly do in college, college football, something I don't think we've, I've ever seen before. What do you think we of that? We do have a, a – uh, if you look at our playoff odds page, there is a um, – Well, you simulate based on on, uh, on who you're going to be opponent. Yeah, that, I understand, is, and that's a smart thing. Yeah, and but there is there a there ranking? There is a strength of schedule estimate there in terms of what your, your, uh, your upcoming opponents and, and their combined winning percentage. Now, the thing is, is, is that we also look not just at, at raw winning percentage. We look at run differential and Pythagorean. Uh, winning percentage, you know, the estimated uh, record based on runs scored and runs allowed. We also do something called uh, base runs, uh, which is an estimate uh, of uh, how many runs you should have scored or should have allowed based on, you know, the number of singles and doubles and triples and walks and strikeouts and stolen bases and things like that. I like, uh, I like things, that. I like that idea. Things, yeah, those things do, um, you know, they, they do provide a different perspective uh, on you know, how strong a team is so that, I, you know, I can say, um, see, I'm, I'm just pulling age here and seeing like the differences. Um, but there's no way to kind of, uh, do, no one has, I, that I've ever seen looks, has looked historically and said, okay, the Indians are 23 and 23, but they've played half their games against crappy teams. So with terrible pitching, so let's, let's adjust for that and, and think of them well, as even we worse. We don't do that per se, but we do say, you know, Hey, look, the Indians are, have, have you know, have played crap teams, or whatever they're also they're plus twenty seven in their run differential. Uh, they're actually better than their record indicates, uh, and we should expect them to improve. They're three games below their Pythagorean uh, projection and two games below their base run projection. They're not as bad a team as they appear to be, um, and they are going to get to feast on you know these these other four teams in the division. Uh, that's seventy eight games of their schedule. You know, there's no getting around that. We don't use you know. Yeah. I am. Uh, very in favor of the un, what's called the unbalanced schedule, where you're playing almost half the games of your division. Uh, you're you playing like 19 that. games against each opponent in the division uh, and about six or seven against the other teams in the league and, and, and a few interleague teams. 
Um, you know, because I think those intra-division rivalries are what make baseball go. Um, you know, Yankees, Red Sox, uh, uh, you know, right now, uh, Astros, Angels is, is appointment viewing. Um, you know, Dodgers, Giants in a good year, not necessarily this year. Uh, well, let me um, transition to that in our last two minutes that we have. Um, what do you think about the Dodgers? You know, I woke up this morning and like, what the Wait hell happened? They're only four and a half back. I understand <laughs> yeah. they stink, but you know what? You know what? It, it, what do you think about the Dodgers and their projection going forward? They're six they're only, games under five hundred. Yeah, I understand that, but again, they're only four and a half back. Yeah, they, you know, they started off very badly, but uh, getting Justin Turner back has been a boon. Uh, they have actually the best run differential in the mm-hmm. National League West, which is not a very strong division right now. The Rockies have come back to earth. Um, you know, the the run differential was always in the Dodgers' favor, even when they were, you know, eight games below 500 or ten games below 500. And, and now we're seeing them uh, trending upwards because they're, you know, that the the breaks are evening out. Um, they're winning, you know, they're winning close games that they weren't winning before, um, and uh, they're not getting blown out as much, and uh, they're trending upwards. So, you know, I don't think they're in great shape. I think, you know, you're down Clayton Kershaw and Hyunjin Ryu, and for a while Rich Hill as well. Uh, although Kershaw's on his way back, you know, they've taken, you know, some major hits to the rotation. They've taken some major hits to the lineup. They're never going to get their best team on the field because they lost Corey Seager for the season. Uh, but they have weathered uh, the worst part of the year. And I think, you know, Turner, from a qualitative standpoint, this is a guy who uh, is not just, you know, potentially their best hitter, but also a, a clubhouse presence. And having him around the team, maybe to give a little kick in the ass and, and provide some urgency, uh, I'm sure does not hurt uh, relative to uh, lacking him uh, as they did early in the season. Well, Jay, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. This has been Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangrass, formerly of Sports Illustrated. He's the creator of Jaws and the author of the Cooperstown Casebook. You can follow Jay on Twitter at, at Jay, J-A-Y underscore Jaffe. That's at J-A-Y underscore Jaffe. Jay, thank you again for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Sure thing. A pleasure. Thanks. So that's been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We have one quarter to go. We have our over-under segment, so lots to look forward to. Please join us again after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. We're here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner, um, and some combination of us two and Shane Jensen and Cade Massey here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. You can also listen to our podcasts on iTunes and or SoundCloud, and of course, you can be part of the conversation, just like we've had a number of callers already today. We'd love to talk to you in our last half hour, especially during our over-under segment as well. Maybe you have an over-under for us that we could do live. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. 942 You can also tweet at us, at WMoneyBall, and you can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Adi... There was actually a big event that also took place last Saturday, and it's, as they say, it was part of the most exciting two minutes in sports. That's right. Um, it was a horse race called the Preakness, um, Justify. And it was a horse race. There was a horse race. <laughs> um, it's uh, A horse, Justify, won the second leg of the Triple Crown after winning the first one at the Kentucky Derby. Right. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a specific question. Two things. First, just so you know the betting odds, Justify is currently a minus 125 to win the third leg of the Triple Crown is the Belmont Stakes. So let's take a piece it's by piece. a bigger pe- favorite to bring the Preakness, by the way. That's correct. Well, it's also the number of horses racing is right. different. But let me just start the first thing. Right now, 
I'm telling. I have a lot of questions around the horse race and statistics. Let's start with the first one. That means Justify is a favorite against the field at minus one twenty-five. Just to remind everybody, up until American Pharaoh won the Triple Crown four years ago, no horse had won the Triple Crown for thirty-eight years until uh, it's since nineteen seventy-eight, and then prior to that, of course, Secretariat in seventy-three. What do you think about Justify? against the field. Okay, so uh, just to complete the circle on that observation, not only was it 38 years, but there were about, there were many opportunities. 13. There were 13, and all until American Pharaoh, all, all of them had lost, obviously. Let's be clear. 13 opportunities where a horse had won the first, first two legs two and of the one, Triple Crown and, won and the not first won two the and third. And, so, and the reason for that is there's a number of reasons, but the primary reason is the Belmont Stakes is the longer race. It's and a mile so and a half. It's a mile and a half. And secondly, a lot of horses don't run in the Preakness, and so you get a much bigger, stronger, well-rested field for the Belmont Stakes for the longer race. So um, I'm actually, um, I, even though the odds are currently with Justify against the, against the field, I would probably take the field okay, if I'm offering gambling. And I also noticed that, that one of the things that Jeff Cedar has taught us over the years, our horse racing expert, is that uh, it's, the, it's the rate at which you kind of slow down as it gets longer. And if you looked at the last... Oh, oh, let me, oh let's get to that. So I wanted to get that. You watched the race. I, I watched the replay of the okay, race, Okay, so it's whatever. You yeah. watched the race. As everyone noted that watched the race, and thank you for bringing... I was, that was going to be my next point, but you yeah. might as well... Let me Just set it up and then it. have you continue with it. Um, Justify looked bad at the end of that race. He looked like he was slowing down at a much faster, faster pace, rate. Matter yeah. of fact, four horses, or certainly three, almost caught Justify right at the end. If that had been... I understand the strategy might have been different, but if that race had gone on for another 100 yards, Justify is not winning that race. Right. Do you put any stock in that on how much then you're thinking, well, yeah, there's a longer race coming up. If this horse is going to slow down at the end, it's not going to get better. It's not going to get better. What's your thought? I I mean, I would agree, and I I don't really know the actual details, uh, but I will say that we did see the logarithmic curves that that Jeff Seeger had sent us. Please tell our listeners what that means. So essentially what you do is if you track the rate at which horses are slowing down as the race continues, and you you can fit that with a logarithmic curve pretty nicely, and then you can estimate the the, the slope of that logarithmic curve to get you a sense of their, their rate at which they slow down, and justify who has a tremendously powerful super fast horse doesn't have an extraordinarily good number when it comes to that that forecast. Now, of course, it's just a forecast, and a, and a lot has to is determined by how things play out. But my guess is, and I've talked to a few expert handicappers in the, in, over this last week, is that if the if the other jockeys go out really hard, forcing Justify to, to really run very fast... Which is what fast, happened, by the way, in this which race. Which is what happened. That'll cause him to tire, and then other horses can kind of hang back and then pass him at the end. So I was going to ask you anything else. Do you think, I I don't know why it would be true, but I could make an argument. I don't know if I believe it from a statistical perspective. Is there any chance that triple crown winners come in bunches? So in other words, it's not independent by year. Look, you can always look back. I'm going to tell you my theory about why it could happen, but I'm just going to ask you before I give my theory, is there any chance that, let's be clear to everyone here, Conditional on a horse having won one fairly recently, 
Does that raise the odds that another horse will win the Triple Crown? Well, the only way that could happen is if people kind of adjust the schedules and who they race uh, because of the of those occurrences. So maybe that if that affects how people race their other horses, maybe. But I don't know enough about horse racing to to understand or or offer a credible theory for why that would be. Cool. And that's why, by the way, I'm voting. I would if I were betting, I would be betting against justified just on the base rates. Triple crowns are very rare. Uh, horses winning two in a row it's is not, not so rare. rare, and so I'm just would have to just guess that that's unlikely. Now, so would I, so in other words, I would bet against the field if I was given. I would bet in favor of the field if I was given decent enough odds. So could you could one come up with an argument that? Um, and I'm not going to make an argument. Well, could one make an argument around training? Like, imagine I told you that something happened in the 1970s that some trainers yep. learned could be and- by the existence of a single trainer. Who's training all these horses? That's that. That'll cause cause it to happen in a bunch. Well, by the way, am I correct, uh, Matt, that Bob Baffert, I know he's the trainer for Justified. Yep. Was he also the trainer for American Pharaoh? Could, if Matt, could you check that? Bob Baffert, if he was the trainer for also for American Pharaoh. If it is, now that would, that be, would be interesting. That would be an interesting explanation. Also, potentially it could be training methods or, or changing. Well, or that's what I'm dealing, asking. But, but you know, it would things. have to happen differentially yep. for certain. He was the trainer. Thank you. Thank you for our producer, Matt Datz. Um, so... Now that maybe could you could say it's come in bunches because it's the same trainer who's got who's figured out a technique. Who's figured out a technique until, for doing until it until that that spreads. But anyway, it's interesting and that'll happen. In a, when is the race going to be? I don't even. There's know. There's exactly. actually interestingly, there's a longer gap between yeah. the uh, Preakness and the Belmont than there is. It goes, let's call it week Two one, weeks. week three, then week six. Okay, so it's a so three a, week gap. So we have between, some time before the race. We have occurs. time. But let me just say, you have to agree from a fan's perspective. You have to want Justify to have won the Preakness because sure. now, now there's exciting. excitement. Now yeah. there's excitement in the Belmont. There's just such excitement. Well, yeah. we also have something that we don't have to wait three weeks for, a winner-go-home Game 7 in hockey. So we have the, Seems like they come up all the time, don't they? And they do. <laughs> um, and so we have a the Washington Capitals playing at the uh, Tampa Bay Lightning tonight in Game 7. Um, do you have any guess? I don't know if you read this. Did you look at what the odds are of the home team winning a I game seven? What would be your guess? So, again, the reason I'm asking out of these questions is, similar to when you take the lead in a baseball game in the first inning, what's the chances? I like to get people's perceptions of effect size. So how much does it matter? Given they're at 3-3, three, three, right, given they're I, at 3-3, three, three, yeah. you would say these two teams are relatively equal. Now, the only difference, unless you want to build in momentum, the only difference is Home ice. Well, they're home ice, and you probably would argue that the team that is home ice is slightly favored because that's why they are in home, home, home ice in the last in the, game. If you believe in the regular season, meaning yeah, anything in meaning hockey, meaning anything. All right, which I, I think it does. I don't. I don't think. I don't think it's like it's like. Uh, I think it's not like basketball where the the regular season is is kind of pointless in some level. So I would guess, and just to throw out the background, this is I was just looking at this data yesterday. Hockey, the uh, home field advantage is is about fifty five percent. It's a, it's the second lowest among the major sports. Baseball being the lowest, and uh, so I would go with probably fifty seven, fifty eight percent. Yeah. So just so you know, uh, this is the thirty third time. Thanks, Matt, about this. The third time in NL has, NHL history, a Stanley Cup semifinals has gone to a game seven. The home team is twenty one and eleven. Okay. So right around sixty four, sixty five percent. That's. That's pretty significant. That's, yeah, that's, sure. That's pretty significant. And I would say a chunk of that is because they're the better team. 
And that and that's the question I'm asking you. Is it's not in your view? It's not because home field advantage is ten percent, and uh, and and the rest of it. The other, I mean, ten percent getting to to fifty five percent, and then the other ten percent is due to the better teams better win, team and just maybe a little bit of luck thrown in. The better teams win. <laughs> yeah. um, let me ask you another question related to that. Um, it turns out, by the way, the team that scores first is this is very interesting. Include in the two thousand the team that scores first. Sorry, by the way, in the game has a seventy five percent chance of winning the game. So again, it gets back to man, it's great to take the lead. Matter of fact, it might have implications for how you play your rotations early on in a hockey game. Yeah, I think it has implications there. Well, either way, I'm looking very much forward to the game seven tonight. Well, for all of our listeners on Morton Moneyball, this is something we started a couple months ago. We have a new segment here on Morton Moneyball, and so now let's go to the tape. It's Morton Moneyball's over under. So, Adi, normally uh, when Kate is here as our host, our lead host, um, he passes it on to me, but I'm here, so I, I can pass just it to pass, me, huh? No, I'm going to pass you it can, on to myself. Oh, oh, you're I'll not pass it me, on I'll to you. I'll take it. I'll, I'll pass it on uh, to you. What caught your eye in the over-unders that we have this week? Well, um, I, I went right to baseball um, because those two are right. We talked about them in the first half, so maybe we can turn them into to over-unders. So the first over-under is Hall of Famers projected for this coming uh, season in 2019. Okay, so why don't, let's go through each player one by one, and I'll tell you whether I think they'll go to the Hall of Fame this year, and that will give us the over-under, which is three and a half. Okay, so you want to add them up. All right, so let's start with Rivera. He's an easy one. I think Mario Rivera is going to the Hall of Fame. By the way, he should be a unanimous Hall of Famer. The only rationale is as long as somebody never votes for a reliever, I'm okay with that. But uh, otherwise, he should be the first unanimous Hall of, Hall Fame. of Famer. He won't be, but but the, because there's 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 complaints about reliever. So let's talk about the three at the back end: McGriff, Oswalt, and Pettit. None of them. I would say none of. Uh, it's interesting about McGriff. Because you know he just missed out on 500 home runs. Right, he was you know he was close. Um, he was a good player. Even I'll even give him a very good player for a long time. But he was never the best player in baseball. So I would say no. Roy uh, Oswalt, interestingly, it's not he didn't have a great seven years. But he had a great career. But man, oh man, not only a and great so did career. Pettit, Pettit and, had a great career and as so well. did Pettit. But are, are these think, these guys are going to take years to accumulate the votes before well, they do it. Of course, with Andy Pettit, we know he has he was actually uh, admitted uh, performance one, I don't think this will, this will drag him. I think it will drag him enough that it'll keep him out of the keep Hall of out. Fame because I think Andy Pettit when you add, you know, this is the thing that Jay Jaffe was talking about, he gets the big lift similar to Kurt Schilling for his postseason career. Right. I mean, one of the great postseason I think, I think Kurt Sch- Schilling should should earn should, er, deserves it eventually. So also uh Helton, he's his first season as well. No. No. I mean, no. I mean, Todd Helton, I mean, people are going to have trouble, first of all, DH most of the yeah. time. Secondly, he played in Colorado for a lot right. of his career, if not most of his career. I, I don't see Todd Helton whatsoever. No. All right. So over under. We Obviously, we know some of the others. We have Holiday, Mar- um, Edgar no. Martinez, Messina, probably won't make it yet. Clemens and Bonds, not yet on those two. So 3.5 under, over under. Under. You're I mean, under. let me just say, I'll just summarize. Mario Rivera, yes. Roy Halliday, No. Edgar Martinez, maybe yes. this year. Yeah, I think this is his year. Mike Messina, maybe. This might be Messina's year. This might be. Um, Clemens, no. Bonds, That's no. It. Schilling, no. Helton, no. Berkman, Pettit, Oswald, no. McGriff, no. So, so I'm just, going under. Th- uh, Are you? I'm, I'm going to go under as well. And I'll throw in one fact. There hasn't been four since the first season. Since the very first year. No, no, no. It wasn't just recently? Three. Oh. 
So four is extremely rare. And Edgar Martinez just missed it. And in fact, I remember in their over-under we discussed on this, uh, prior to the election, there's a public ballots. And all four of those were over the threshold, the 75%. Yeah, Edgar, it was, I remember we talked Edgar about it. It was, well it was over, shocking that he didn't it. And it was shocking, it. But, but the prior suggests it's, it's never happened since the very first year. So, well, so go against me, it. So let me ask you, I guess, maybe you could tell our listeners her and Wharton Moneyball. What it implies about the independence of voting on a given ballot, because otherwise there's no reason why couldn't there be six great players in a be. given year. So could you tell us what you well, infer from that? The problem is, is that you only have a limited vote, number of votes. Each 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 ballot can have up to 10 um, that you can check and there's many more eligible. So um, you don't have the opportunity to to. You really, it's, it, once you voted for three or four, it becomes exponentially less so likely. So you think it's the 10 number that's constraining yeah. it as opposed to people just saying, look, I just don't want to have a six-person year. No, I don't think so. I think that they're spread out. I mean, there's lots of good candidates, and people have, will, will spread their votes around. That's, wh- that's why you, know, you, know, you don't see unanimous votes. So my, let's go to the next baseball, right. which is we saw, uh, we saw the, the uh, Rays start off with a reliever. Look into 2021. Over under 3.5 teams using a reliever in the first In the inning. 2021 season itself. Yep. So move into the future and say, will this be relatively a frequent occurrence? Under. You're going under. I'm, I'm going to go over. I think people are going to realize it's a very, it's a good thing and they'll try it occasionally. I hope you're right, but I'm going under. All right. Let's turn our attention to basketball. All right. 2.5 games in the Western Conference Finals. 2.5. So we'll, we'll How many seven. more games? Yep. Right. Obviously additional games here. Um. Wow. there's uh, Look, in my view, there's only two options that are going to happen here in the Western Conference Finals. And I'm trying to decide which one of the two. One is the Warriors get really mad, win Game 5, and then th- if they win Game 5, I think the Warriors are going to win Game 6. The other option is the Rockets win Game 5. I don't think they go back to the Warriors and win Game 6, and then it goes 7. That's why I'm right on the knife edge. I, it's a, I don't, it's a I'm good putting, call. With- I'm putting very low probability on Rockets in 6. Very low. You probably should. Now, it's interesting because if you think about it, if the teams were equal, it's 50-50. Correct. I should have no preference for Warriors and Six over Rockets and Six. As a matter of fact, under the Bradlow momentum story, if the Rockets win Game 5, they'll have won two in a row, and I should actually prefer Rockets and Six to Warriors and Six. So what are you going to do? I'm going over. I think it's going seven. And I'm going to agree. I also think it's going seven. 2.5 games in the Eastern Conference. Are they going seven? So this this is... this is going to muster all of my belief and faith in who I think is the greatest basketball player I've ever seen, LeBron James. So you are going? I'm going under. I think the Cavaliers are going to win in Boston tonight. I think they're going to win Game 6 at home because I think they have figured out the formula on how to beat the Celtics. I don't actually think the Cavs have had a good shooting game yet from three-point range. I don't know how. They, they've won the last two games on hustle, but they haven't really shot it great. They have a bunch of... They were the leading, second-leading team in the NBA in three-point shooting this year. They have not had a great game. The great game is coming. The great LeBron James. I'm going under. Wow. This is, this is a very tough call very for me. Very tough. And by the way, just to remind everybody the data, the Celtics are 9-0 at home this season. They have not lost. And if you want to build on, I don't think this is the same base rate that you were talking about, about horse racing. 
The Celtics have never lost a series up to nothing. They're like thirty-seven and zero, something like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna reverse you. Only I also think it's right on the knife's edge. I'm gonna also go over on this one. I'm predicting both of these are gonna go seven games. That would be extraordinarily that would be extraordinarily exciting. Now I'm not sure how much time we have, but we can go to tennis. So that's Let's go to that, tennis. Very interesting. One and a half grand slams in the next calendar year for Nadal. So I just want to make sure. I, I know our producer Matt Dats. Two and a half. Up. I just want to be clear. I mean, one and a half. Are, are we slam. assuming? Are we including next year's Australian Open? So in the next year, so in the next four slams, does the Nadal win more or less? So one point five. All right. Well, let's give him the French. Let's just assume. Yeah. Let's. But we can't put that as probability one. I, I'm going to put point seven on point eight on the French. Um, over. I'm going to go over also. I mean, I'm from what over. we heard, from, I'm, I'm going to assimilate the knowledge we got from our guests. No, but I'm, I'm doing it from a different reason. I am going to do that. And by the way, notice it says 31 years old, so I'm yep. just confirming it. But let me say why I'm going over. I don't believe Djokovic is ever going to get back to where he was. Andy Murray, I don't even know if he's playing. Hip surgery, all kinds of things. Right. At some point, I mean, Roger Federer is 37 or going to be 37. At some point, very soon, he'll be the old Roger Federer, not the old Roger Federer. Therefore, Nadal has a five-year age I advantage, think that, which Nadal's, is huge. Yep. And so, um, and let me also comment: even you can make an argument. I mean, Nadal's twenty-three and fifteen in his career against Federer. So even if they do both play, the base rate suggests Nadal's going to win. I think Nadal. This is one of those periods in tennis where we'll look back. And by the way, if he ever exceeds. Federer, which he might, he may win six or seven more French until he's 37, 38. We will look back at this period and say, Nadal scooped up a bunch of titles in a fairly weak period of the dominant, because the big four were Rinka, it's not, it's not the big four right now. No, it's They're not. all weakened. Where are the kids? Well, we have some kids. So we have um, Dominic Thiem. Who's, a, who's starting to win some titles. We have a- Alexander Zverev, who, by the Zverev, way, yes. he has more Masters 1000, which is just below this, the Grand Slams, at his age right now than anybody but Nadal. So, I mean, he's had a great start to his career. I think Nadal's coming. I think Theme is coming. I think those are the two guys that we could see possibly, possibly break in there. Up. But I'm going over, and you're going over as and well. And I'm going over. So let's go to our very last uh, over-under football. Nick Foles. All right. The Eagles denied a trade from the Browns for the 35th pick. Wow. So... What do you think? 30, 34.5 draft pick Nick Foles is worth. Over or under? I'm not sure that I, I can answer that, but I'm almost not, I, I almost don't think it's being framed the right way. I mean, it's a very precise question. But I <laughs> so just I don't, I don't, I'll tell you what I don't like. I'll tell you what I don't like. Over or under, Eric? <laughs> what do you I think? think he's so if worth, he comes up in yeah. the draft, what do you think he would go? No, I mean, no, no, that's not the right question. No, I know. I'm that's talking not the right about question, his but that's value about right it. now for the Eagles. And here's what I mean. As you know, the windows in the NFL are small. You don't have a 10-year window in the NFL. No. You have a small window in the NFL. We don't know that Carson Wentz, who was the number one quarterback in the NFL until he got injured last year, we don't know he's going to be ready for the start of the season. We know the most important thing in football to predict who's going to win the playoffs is getting home field advantage. Less games matters more. If he doesn't... If he's not on the team, I'm not sure right now. To be honest, I'm not sure who the backup is. Um, we may lose two or three more games because Carson Wentz isn't fully back. And therefore, even if we made the playoffs, we could be a wild card team instead of the one or two seed. I think 
to maximize the objective function of titles, I think Nick Foles is worth more than the 35th pick. Therefore, I would not trade him given the window sizes in the NFL. I'm going... I don't know which one under, under. is. I'm go- he's I'm under. He, I'm, he's worth I'm more than he's the under. 34th I also and think, a half pick. I also think I was thinking it more more from the draft perspective. He's a in, he's a, a top quarterback, and putting him in kind of at the beginning of the second round just seems like it's not right. Obviously, it's a very different thing because he's already had a career, and, and a draft pick has all this, this future value. But there's also huge uncertainty. By the way, just to let you know, the backup quarterback for the Eagles, do you know who Nate Suffold is? Uh, no. I don't either. I see Dan Loney, the host of Knowledge of Wharton, coming on here Even at 10 he o'clock. doesn't know. No, Dan, no, oh, he's he nodding. Dan, Dan knows Dan who it knows. is. All I'm commenting on is we have you need two quarterbacks in the NFL. Sure. You never know, and we, we saw from last year uh, exactly what happened. So this has been Wharton Moneyball. It's been a great two hours with my co-host, Adi Weiner. We've had uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy talk to us about tennis. We had Jay Jaffe talk to us about the Hall of Fame. We have Dan Loney in here for a second. Dan, what are your thoughts? Nate Sudfeld used, to Sudfeld. Be the, Sudfeld used to be the starting quarterback at Indiana University. He was a really good quarterback in the Big Ten. Bumped around in uh, in the NFL for a couple of years. Now that he's with the Eagles. Bumped and, around in the NFL. Yeah. That, he's yeah. the backup. But yeah. would you trade Foles right now for the 35th no. pick? No. 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 So we have agreement here on Wharton Moneyballs. This has been a great two hours. Um, Again, every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. live here on Sirius XM 111. Some combination of myself, Eric Bradlow, my friend and co-host, Adi Weiner, Kate Massey, Shane Jensen. We'll be here every week. Between now and next week, I don't even know what to tell you to pay attention to. We have a Game 7 in hockey. We've possibly got, if you're Adi Weiner's right, two Game 7s in basketball. We've got, of course, baseball going on. Thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Between now and then, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, enjoy your business. See you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.